there are ways to tackle this damn thing, this PTSD. And uh, it's important that people know that there are others who have been through something like that. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be Mind good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him There's to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to Volume 2 of Angus Horden's conversation with Major General John Cantwell, AO, DSC. Volume 1 finished with the end of John's second combat tour in Iraq in 2006. Be sure to listen to that episode before continuing with this one. By the end of John's time in Iraq, he had been in the Australian Army for 32 years and in January 2007 was made Deputy Chief of Army. But John's highest level of command was still to come. I'm Angus Horden, speaking again today with Major General John Cantwell. John, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thanks, Angus. Thank you very much. Let's begin today's chat, John, in 2009. I understand you had a part to play following the Victorian bushfire disaster. I did. I was called upon at very short notice to take charge of all of the national state, non-government, charitable organisations, all of the organisations who are trying to respond at very short notice to the terrible tragedy of the bushfires on Black Saturday in 2009. 173 people died, whole towns destroyed, vast tracts of land ravaged by the fire with millions of heads of uh, stock and buildings lost. It was a really big job. And uh, I got a phone call on a uh, Saturday, the Saturday of the fires, from Angus Houston, who was uh, the Chief of Defence Force, and gave me a warning order to be ready to go and do this job. On the Sunday morning, he rang to say, stand down, and then uh, they're going to put in uh, the previous police chief, Christine Nixon. Uh, And then on the Sunday lunchtime, he called again to say, it's back on. Nixon can't start for several months. You've got the gig. There's a cabinet meeting starting at 11 o'clock in the morning on Monday in uh, Spring Street, which is where the uh, government uh, is located in Melbourne. Get down there and arrive with a plan. Any questions? No? Good. Get going. So it was a pretty um, rapid deployment uh, internal to Australia, of course. Very tough time. I wrote an outline on the plane on the way down of what I thought I would do to try to get grip of the situation and work out my lines of operation. Very much uh, military planning in a very simple form. And uh, in fact, that plan largely stood the test of time. Uh, I presented it to the cabinet on that Monday and uh, we got on with it. It was uh, a new application of all the skills that the military had taught me, but in a really challenging environment because there was just such widespread devastation. There were so many people displaced. It was still very raw. In fact, the fires were still burning and it became a very interesting challenge 
to conduct activities to see to the immediate safety and, and well-being of thousands of people and communities and then follow up with the initial moves to make those areas safe once the fires had been contained so that people could get back into them and, and start to do something on their destroyed properties and to deal with the, uh, the destruction, which was on a scale that was just hard to, to comprehend. As I said, a million head of a stock, sheep and cattle had to be disposed of. Thousands of kilometres of fencing was lost, so the stock that remained couldn't be contained properly. The roads were destroyed. There was no communications in large areas because all the towers had been destroyed. And, of course, primary amongst all of that was the people and the devastation that had just hit these places and uh, ripped them apart, burned them out, and destroyed so many lives, livelihoods, and whole communities. It was, it was a really challenging time and a very emotional time because there were so many stories of abject horror and fear and the near misses of people who did escape but saw their their loved ones not escape or their pets or their stock saw their houses you know erupting into flames as they roared away with seconds to spare it was an amazing stories to hear and at the same time it was incredibly uplifting to discover that in all of these communities, people on the day and in the days immediately afterwards who had been otherwise living quiet lives were working in their trade, working in their business, teaching at this local school, whatever they were doing, a mum or a dad at home, suddenly found themselves cast into a role of having to rescue themselves, their families and their loved ones and friends. And there were so many heroes that just arose in these communities who'd been there all the time. We just didn't know they were heroes until they were called upon. It was also remarkable to hear the stories of the emergency services, some of whom had, of course, let their own houses burn so they could find others, uh, rescue them, save other properties. So all in all, a really remarkable event to be a part of. Very sad in many, many ways much in, in different ways to my previous military experience. It was quite emotionally charged and very touching because these were Australians in huge numbers just living the ordinary lives, not in a combat zone. So the context was different. But nonetheless, an interesting, demanding, and I think a, a really important role to have been given. And I was very proud of my service there. Then in 2010, we come to your final overseas deployment, this time to Afghanistan. What was your role on this tour. I was appointed to be the national commander in Afghanistan and the wider Middle East. Afghanistan was, of course, the principal area of combat operations, but there were other operations, combat operations going on all over the region uh, involving naval and air force personnel and their equipment. And I was the commander of all of those forces. It was a joint command, not just an army command. It was one which I had gone in to take over from someone else who had done the role. That was General Mark Kelly, uh, a friend of mine, had been my predecessor. It was to really just drive the strategy that Australia had decided upon at the highest level, at the level of the National Security Cabinet and at the highest levels of defence planning. My job was to carry forward that strategy but mesh the high-level planning with what was happening on the ground and to make that work to provide the equipment and the planning and the framework to allow our amazing Australian men and women in all services to do their 
job in a way that all came together to make our national strategy work. That's a really high-level description of it. What it meant in reality was being the boss, leading, coming up with the plans that sort of aligned with what they wanted back in Canberra and trying to make sense of the really complex local environment in Afghanistan and its surrounding countries because I had coverage of Pakistan and the other surrounding countries as well to be the emissary for Australia in a whole range of high-level diplomatic meetings with countries who were hosting our forces in the Middle East, with countries affected by our activities, with others who might well be able to influence the Taliban and, and their followers. So I travelled all over the Middle East, meeting all sorts of amazing people and also a lot of uh, crooks and thugs and standover merchants and power-hungry little war gods in various little places, all trying to synchronise what we are doing. And all the while, having foremost in my mind, achieving the mission, which was to get the Afghans trained up to a point that they could take the lead for operations, particularly in Afghanistan, but it also meant encouraging other forces in the region, naval forces and others, to help them in their, in their roles. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to lead Australian men and women doing an incredibly difficult job in a very complex environment and doing it so well with such skill and compassion and when needed with such lethality and precision. It was just a chance to see Australia at its best, in my view. It was Australia at its absolute best. Difficult job, great people doing it, ordinary Australians. And uh, to be their boss, to be their leader and to spend so much time with them was utterly fantastic. John, whilst holding that position in Afghanistan, you were still going outside the wire. You're still going out on patrols. How was that resonating with you? I did that against the wishes, the stated wishes of my boss, uh, my bosses. I had several bosses up the chain of command mainly because I think they were a bit uh, concerned if uh, what if I got knocked off or even worse, potentially captured. So, you know, it would have been a terrible blow to our strategy to have a senior officer knocked over or to appear, you know, on Al Jazeera or somewhere else in an orange jumpsuit with a knife up my throat. That would have, that would have not gone well with the national strategy, I suspect. There's some pretty direct messaging to me. Don't go outside the wire. Your job is to sit in your office and command and coordinate. And that's absolutely true. That was my main game. However, I came from a mindset, perhaps because I came through the ranks as a soldier before being commissioned. I came in with a view that, I'll talk about diggers generally, you know, I mean sailors, um, you know, airmen and soldiers, but diggers like to see their boss get their hands dirty. Maybe it's just an Australian thing, but I don't think so. I think all people like to see their boss occasionally share what is going on at the coalface. And for us in this situation, it meant getting out and seeing what the people were doing, whether they were on patrol in, you know, some bloody awful dangerous valley in Afghanistan or spending time on a naval ship conducting interception of uh, ships potentially carrying terrorists or embargoed weapons and the like in the Gulf or sitting on the flight deck of a Hercules ferrying stores around or, or a P-3 maritime patrol aircraft helping coordinate operations across the whole region. Really important to get out on the ground. I guess the more um, risky phase was being, you know, on patrol with the guys on a regular basis in Afghanistan. And I did a lot of that. 
I didn't need to do that. I'd had enough exposure to combat. I'd, I'd used my personal weapon in, in self-defence previously. I knew what it was like to get in a gunfight. So I didn't need to go and do that. But it was important to show that I really cared about what was going on right down at the level of the, the most junior digger. And they responded to that extremely well. They were proud to have me with them, I think. Uh, you know, for a young corporal to be handed a two-star general and told, don't get him killed and come back in, you know, eight hours with him alive or else was a big a big ask for a young man. But they all responded well and uh, I stayed out of their way. I just acted as another man carrying a rifle when that was required. And we had a few contacts and, uh, again, I just stayed out of the way and didn't grandstand. I didn't need to do that. It was an important part for me and I, I don't resolve from it for one moment. I remember telling uh, Angus Houston, look, I hear you, sir, when you tell me not to do it. I cannot obey that command. I just can't. I I can't do that. That's not me. That's not how I'm going to operate. I'm going to do it. That's just the way it is. And he shook his head and told me to think about it some more. Well, that was, we just did it. And to me, it paid off enormously because when I was asked questions about the details to help inform big decisions, I could speak from having seen it, not just read reports, not just looked at PowerPoints, not just talked on the phone, having been there, spoken to the commanders on the spot, seen it with my own eyes. It was an important activity, I believe. John, it's interesting. Your experience has found many common situations back in history. I remember General Robert E. Lee in the American Civil War used to complain about his generals, such as Stonewall Jackson and Longstreet, of being too quick to get in front of the action. And I remember Jackson and Lee were so brilliant together because Jackson had a feel for battle because he was like you, he was on the point. I think you can make a case for what you do. I'm very glad, as I'm sure Angus Houston is, that you didn't end up like Stonewall Jackson. Indeed. I tremble to uh, align myself with people like Jackson and Lee, but nonetheless, I do think that many commanders have felt the same need as I did to get out there and get a bit of dirt on your hands and a bit of dust on your boots, just the same as the Deacons were doing. Angus Houston is known very well to this country. How did you find your experience working with him? I think he's an amazing Australian. I, of course, had known him for many years. And in many ways, he had mentored me along, particularly as a more senior officer. I spent a lot of time with him, of course, doing my job, the various jobs I had over the years. He just struck me as the complete package when it came to senior leadership. Calm, resourceful, absolutely focused, you know, forward-looking the whole time, but with a really quite powerful personal connection. You know, when you spent time with with Angus Houston, you felt as though that he was really present. You know, he wasn't just spending time smiling for a photograph and then quickly showing you out the door. He he wanted to hear what you had to say, and he really engaged. I, I learned a lot from him, and we got on very, very well, very well indeed. And he was a tremendous support to me, particularly in the very dark days when they came. He and I had many personal conversations and he helped me very, very much in getting through the tough times. And when it came to it down the track, when I was very unwell after I came home, he was a very great support to me personally then. But we'll, I guess we'll get to that in due course. But overall, Angus was terrific. There was, of course, a three-star general between him and I. That was General Mark Evans, who was the uh, Joint Operations Commander. So almost all of my daily interactions with the senior leadership was through General Evans. And that was virtually daily, but the CDF made many visits to the theatre. Uh, he and I also spoke directly on many occasions and and I always always look forward to speaking to him he always had something wise to say a word of encouragement 
and just uh, gave me heart every time I spent time talking to him. We are so lucky to have had him in command during those difficult years. John, looking back on that tour, what do you hold as your greatest success as a leader? I think my tour was successful as a commander. Some might say more or less, you know, one way or the other. I don't don't know. That's for them to judge. I feel the appointment was successful. We achieved our mission. We improved the situation where we were able to. We made things better for a whole bunch of people who deserved our help, who didn't deserve to be thrown back into the arms of the Taliban and all their dark ages approach to life and treatment of women and girls and the brutal the brutal sort of way that they see life running. So we improved the world and particularly in Afghanistan in very important ways while we were there. So I guess the mission overall and the tribute here is really to all those men and women who made that happen. I played my role as the commander. But the thing that really sticks with me about the time is my sense of enormous pride in these extraordinary people that I had under command. Australians doing such amazing stuff. Young guys, young girls who you would, you know, might have otherwise seen working in a fast food restaurant back in Australia before they joined the military or misbehaving in a nightclub or whatever else. Suddenly, here they are in life and death situations, 20 years old and forced to make decisions in the blink of an eye that will affect whole lives and have strategic impact. And they just stepped up. They just did it. And it just never ceased to amaze me how wonderful our people were in difficult situations and how enduring they were, how tough they could be. None of this sort of namby-pamby, Gen X, YZ, whatever we're up to, fragility. These were tough, young, and not so young in some cases, but tough Australians doing great stuff. And I just wished I could have bottled those moments and shown them to every other Australian back here. And they would just be so proud of what they were doing. And it made me say out loud on so many occasions, you, know, you, you people are just extraordinary and you, you humble me by what you're doing here. And if your loved ones at home could see you, their hearts would just burst with pride. So be proud of what you're doing. You know, you're, you're amazing. And those sort of messages, saying those sorts of things, heartfelt sentiments, I think was an important part of my role as the boss, to actually tell them that they were doing good except that things weren't the way we would like necessarily. But nonetheless, you're doing an important, really important mission, and I could not be more proud of the way you're doing it. That was a success, I felt, felt in, in binding the morale more tightly to boost the people's, our troops' understanding of where they sat, why they were there, what it was all about, what the sacrifice was for. That was an important success. I think the other thing that would come up there would be my role in communicating, not just downwards to all of the troops about what we have to do and why we're doing it, but upwards and outwards, upwards through my chain of command to have them informed as well as I possibly could about what was really going on, cutting through all the nonsense and just laying it out and saying, here is what's really happening and this is what we must do. And if we don't do this, these are the real consequences and just lay it out without fear of, you know, them not liking the message. And I think that is a really important part of a senior leader, communicating, creating the situation where the senior leadership can make the best possible decision. Now, sometimes politics gets in the way or other factors get in the way. Grand strategy doesn't always fit well. 
So there were always compromises, but at least they heard truth when they heard from me. I didn't for a minute sugarcoat it. And sometimes that got me a, you know, a bit of a, a bit of strife. But anyway, that's the way it is. That was my job. So two areas there, upwards communication to the, to the senior leadership, including our politicians, and downwards to our troops. That, they were the successes I think I had. You then come home from war for the last time, John. We're not going to ask you to relive all of this, so I will now summarise to our listeners the following. It is said that you were on track to become Chief of the Australian Army. That didn't happen. Instead, your years of service finally caught up with you, and shortly after your return home, you ended up in a psychiatric ward, unfortunately. In 2012, you are awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, and later that year, you retire from the Australian Army after 38 long years of great, outstanding service. You and Jane then moved to the Sunshine Coast, where you are today, now to your 23rd home as a couple. Also, in 2012, you published your first book, Exit Wounds, which was a bestseller and is renowned for its honesty and top quality writing. You also spent some time as a public speaker on PTSD and mental health, but you don't do that anymore. So my question, John, is why did you choose to write a book and become a public speaker about these issues? It surely couldn't have been that easy. It wasn't easy, Angus. It turned out to be far more difficult than I thought. I did it because I became so unwell. I had spent 20 odd years battling what I had come to know was PTSD from my various experiences. The losses in 2010 were significant. We lost 10 killed in action and 64 wounded. Many of those were terrible wounds, life-changing wounds. And I could see so clearly amongst the men and women who had shared these experiences that they were struggling. And I could see in them the start of what I had been struggling with for years. And that was that sense of shock and dismay and sadness and a bit of guilt, all of those things. And I could just see it being played out again. And I just thought to myself, I can't just slink away and lick my own wounds without trying to help all of those thousands of men and women who, who have been in some way or other very seriously affected by their service. And so at a time when I realised that my service had to come to an end because I just wasn't well enough to command, I also, I guess this sounds a bit too tacky and sweet to be true, but I just wanted to do some more. I just wanted to serve on in some way, even though I couldn't really serve on in uniform. And I felt this very strong compulsion to, rather than just fall back when assaulted, to counterattack. I guess it's a bit like, a, you know, the old ambush drill. If you get ambushed, charge into the ambush. Well, I had been ambushed by PTSD in many ways. And it was just my counterattack was to go in and say, well, I will show you bloody PTSD. I will now try to do everything I can to help others understand the issue. And if they struggle with it, to deal with it themselves for them and their family's sake. So that was my motivation. It does sound a bit saccharine, but that's genuinely what went through my mind. I wanted very strongly to continue to somehow or other serve those soldiers, sailors and airmen who I admired so much and had such a privilege to command. We know from the media, from books and the many veterans we've had as guests on this podcast already, that you're not alone in the struggles you've faced. 
Many come back from war with these battle scars and it's important that a senior leader such as yourself can speak so honestly about it all. Well, I think that was in my mind that I should use my rank, my status as a recently returned senior commander with some public profile because of my previous service and and activities such as the bushfires and elsewhere, to use that privileged position, you know, uh, a senior officer, a general, to really hammer this message about there is a problem. It is widespread. It is going to cause a lot of sadness to a great number of people. And we as a community, we as a defence force, must do something about this. And at the time, there wasn't a great understanding. There was not much discussion going on about PTSD. And it just wasn't in the community debate, the public discussion like it is now. And so I wanted to exploit my status and rank to to try to do something about that. It really became an obsession with me to get this out. And and even though, as I said earlier, the book was very hard to write, it paid dividends in my view. Thousands and thousands of people have read this book now. There's, I think, more than 40,000 published copies and many of those have been read by multiple people. And I've had so many people come up to us, to write to us, to email us and phone us to say, thank you, you know, you've just changed our lives. We now understand our situation isn't unique, that we aren't alone. And it's so humbling in so many ways, particularly the fact that so many of the soldiers and, and sailors and airmen who, who I was their sort of their boss, their senior boss, to, you know, many levels up, take the time to ring me and say, how are you going, boss? You know, are you still okay? I'm going okay or I'm not going okay? And what do you reckon? What should I do? I don't know how many generals get phone calls from their former soldiers on a regular basis. I hope most of them do. I suspect most don't. And uh, that, to me, is the greatest benefit of my service, particularly my senior leadership in combat roles, is that I have the privilege of picking up the phone on a regular basis and talking to a digger who would probably have never dreamed of ringing a two-star general in his life and who wants to have a yarn. That, to me, is the greatest payoff of all. Well, John, we're very grateful you chose to come on this show and share your experiences with us and our listeners. Why do you think it's important for people to tell their stories and to share their experiences with others? The experience of of warfare is a profound experience. It's a very important part of our our national existence. It is unfortunately part of our history and it is therefore important that we understand it, that we know about it, that we comprehend what has shaped our country and To ignore that is just folly because that then leaves us sort of operating much like a Labrador dog just lives in the moment. You know, whatever feels good, just crack on. You know, eat this food, go for this run, wag that tail. Well, we can't operate like that. We need to understand where we've been and what we've done and what shaped us as a people and where we're going and what are the consequences of those decisions? What might it mean if we do certain things? And so understanding one's history, one's place in the world and the struggles that have led to where we are today in such an amazingly wonderful and such a fortunate country, it's really important. So sharing these stories, these particular stories, is vital. It also means that people get to understand that they're not alone, that their experience 
of course, it's unique because no one else had that experience at that moment with that experience behind them. And so everyone's experience is absolutely unique. But there are many similarities between you know, the things that I went through, although they were rather extreme in many cases, the reaction, the response is very much the same as, as others. You know? So it's important that people understand that they are going through things that are not unusual, that they are not different, that they are not strange or weak or flawed in some way, that their response to these terrible things they might have been through or witnessed or been a part of is perfectly normal and that there are thousands, thousands of other people just like them going through similar worries and, and anxiety and fear and troubled sleep and sense of guilt and loss and shame and, and all of these things. They're very common. They're very, very predictable as well amongst people like us who have been through terrible situations. And so it's important that they hear this and also hear that there are responses. There are ways of getting through this. You don't have to hit the bottle. You don't have to become a jerk to everyone around you. Although many of us sometimes, you know, fall into this trap. You don't have to recoil from life and lock yourself away. There are people who want to help. And I'm very proud of the fact that my little contribution to bringing the idea of PTSD as a real issue into the public debate has resulted in changed attitudes and more money and more funding for programs, more resources. And so there are now many, many places and people to whom troubled veterans can turn and their families can turn to get advice, to get help, to get medication if that's what's needed. There are ways to tackle this damn thing, this PTSD. And uh, it's important that people know that there are others who have been through something like that and are struggling in the same way and, and that there are lots of folks out there who would like to help them as best they can. So that's the, the important part of sharing these stories. We've focused a lot about the challenges you've faced, but I don't want to overlook the positives. How do you reflect on your contribution and service, John? In what ways did the Army change you for the better? Well, the Army changed me entirely, totally. I love the Army. I love being a soldier. I love being a young officer. I love being a middle-ranking and a senior officer. Everything about it, I just loved it all. It was just a remarkably fortunate decision for me to line up as a 17-year-old soldier at the recruiting centre and apply to be enlisted. And it taught me everything I know about the world and about life and about people. It taught me to be a leader. It gave me a sense of purpose, which I still feel. It gave me an enormous sense of respect for the institution of the military and the sacrifices of all of those who have gone ahead of us. It has given me a chance to see the world in some of its most ugly forms and also to see humanity in some of its most uplifting and marvellous forms. So it's certainly made me a better person in many, many ways, better informed than, than lots of other folks. And, you know, some of that wisdom has been hard won and I wish I had found the wisdom in ways that weren't so painful. But I hope that I've been able to share some of that wisdom through books and speaking and, and the like and a program such as this. So the Army in every way has just been my life and I'm very, very grateful for all the opportunities that it uh, presented to me. You spoke about the positives and, of course, there are positives. 
even though some aspects of my service have left a few scars, physical <laughs> and a few more emotional scars, you know, that's just part of the deal. That's part of the deal. And if you expect to come through life unbattered, unbruised, you're very naive. Life is a struggle by and large, and some people struggle more than others. And in some cases, we struggle with post-traumatic stress arising from our duty. And not just military people, of course, nurses, police officers, fireys, all of our emergency services are perhaps exposed more regularly and more thoroughly to horrible events than than those of us in the military. So we don't have a mortgage on this stuff, those of us in in uniform who, who have served. There are positives to be drawn from rough experiences. It can give you more resilience. It can provide scope for you to say, okay, I'm not gonna let this beat me. I will rise above this. I will show the same courage and determination that I had as a a young digger in Afghanistan or uh, in Vietnam or a sailor on a ship in all the various seas of the ocean and the air in which uh, our aviators have flown and supported all those people who do that stuff. I'll show the same courage now, the same determination to try to to get over this, to be honest with myself that I have a problem, that it's a problem that is normal and natural because I've had some extraordinary experiences and but I'm not going to let it beat me and I'm not going to let it infect my family. I'm not going to let it make my life miserable. I'm not going to let it drive away those who I love and who love me. I will do my damned best to keep fighting. And so... If there is a positive to come out of negatives, that's one way of looking at it. And I think it's an important and powerful message to continue to show that same courage and determination that made us, people like us, such potent members of the Defence Force and, and carriers of our national spirit forward in combat zones. We need to show that same courage and determination in the quiet moments of our own lives, in our own homes, in our own minds. Knowing what you now know, if you could go back to 1974 when it all started for you, what advice would you give to a younger John Cantwell? Okay, I would say, mate, you have made a great choice and you're going to love this, but don't hold back. Absorb everything you can. Go hard. Go really hard. Have a crack at everything. Don't hold back. Have some self-confidence. I started off as this pathetic pretty useless 17 year old who wouldn't say boo to a mouse and the army taught me to grow a spine and get on and so it taught me self-confidence and it taught me about teamwork and I would say get into that get a hold of all that and get as much of that into you as you can and you'll be amazed at what you can achieve if you just have a crack you know you'll be absolutely amazed the other thing I would say is make sure you marry Jane She's going to save your life in ways you cannot possibly comprehend. And if you don't marry that girl, you're an idiot. And so make sure you do. That's the two pieces of advice I've given myself. And what else have you been doing since leaving the army, John? I've been pretty busy. We've spoken about the book Exit Wounds. That took up a full year of writing and then promoting the book and getting out and speaking about it. I've done quite a lot of public speaking, particularly about emotional trauma and resilience, a lot of work for veterans organisations, a lot of fundraising for veterans organisations. And and Jane and I are pretty proud of how much money we've been able to get for a whole range of terrific organisations who are trying to help veterans and their families. 
These days I do much less of that. I found that despite how much good I was doing, perhaps with all that talking and speaking about PTSD, it wasn't doing me any favours. And so I've now tried to take a bit of my own advice and uh, care for myself a little bit and care for my family and, and so on. I've been settling into the little community where we live and I, I really love that. I try to do some stuff that is creative. So I do a bit of woodworking and I'm surprised myself that I can do a bit of that. I inherited that from my dad. Uh, so I've got a pretty well-equipped workshop. I've also inherited from my dad a bit of an ability to draw and paint. So I've been doing a bit of art and that seems to be um, very fulfilling. I love that. It really, really does does help. We spend a lot of time on a motorbike, uh, Jane and I, uh, whenever we can. We mount up on the bike and off we go and we chit-chat via Bluetooth and go and have a coffee or a lunch somewhere and just spend time together. These days, I focus on family. We've got, you know, four beautiful grandchildren. So I care about, you know, our family and our, our little ones. I'm trying to be a good, good husband, a good dad, a good granddad. John, we've spoken to lots of veterans and there's lots of things that I'm certainly going to remember about you. I can picture you at the front of that tank column with all the chaos and all the yelling of all that multinational force. You just telling your Batman to basically wait and then you prodding the sand and moving ahead and then moving that column on. There's lots to remember about you, John. We just want to say thank you. It's been an utterly incredible life of service. Thank you for everything you've done for Australia and thank you for speaking with us today. It's very, very kind, Angus. Thank you for that. It has been a great life. And sometimes I look back and wonder how on earth I managed to achieve all that. And little old me, the, you know, the country kid from southeast Queensland found himself in some pretty amazing places. It's great to be able to help others by sharing some of those stories uh, through this program. So thank you for, uh, for putting this project together. And I think you are making a valuable contribution to people's understanding of, uh, of life in the military, life on the line, as you uh, call your program. So thanks very much indeed. I'm Angus Horden, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. We are most grateful to John for coming on the podcast and speaking with us so openly. He didn't have to. None of our guests ever do. But it's such an honour for us to record these important stories for our listeners like you. Exit Wounds is the deeply human account of one man's tour of the war on terror, the moving story of life on a modern battlefield. From the nightmare of cheating death in a field strewn with mines to the utter despair of looking into the face of a dead soldier before sending his body home to his mother. John Cantwell hid his post-traumatic stress disorder for decades, fearing it would affect his career. Raw, candid, and eye-opening, no one who reads this book will be unmoved. Buy your copy online today. Follow this podcast on social media, at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter. Find out more about us at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcast app and on YouTube so you never miss an episode. You'll find our YouTube account under Thistle Productions. If you enjoyed Angus's chat with John, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars or share a link to the episode on your social media. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.